part five of our How to Study the Bible series. Um, last week we covered uh, historical narrative and covered the book of Acts. And I told you that Acts essentially, according to the definition that we were working with in terms of what a historical narrative was, Acts was unique in the New Testament in that it was the only book that was like that. However, you might be um, tempted to lump the Gospels also into that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, here's the thing with the Gospels, is that uh, they are, I pulled, put a quote at the very top of your sheet there, the four Gospels form a unique literary genre for which there are few real analogies. So here's what's great about the Gospels and what's difficult about the Gospels. What's great about the Gospels is that that's where we get our primary source of information about Jesus and of Jesus, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. So that's what's fantastic about them. The problem is that we have a tendency to look at how to handle the Gospels like we would historical narrative or even bigger, a modern book. And the fact is they are unique in the way that they were compiled, in the way that they were written, and what they intend to do. And our point tonight is to try to look at those differences and try to kind of unpack and prepare ourselves better to study them effectively. So that's what we're setting out to do, okay? Um, point one here, let's, let's deal first with their, their uniqueness. Point one, the uniqueness lies within their number and content. It lies within their number and content. Point A, there are four Gospels, right? So that's, that's uh, Bible Study 101, which is fine. If you don't know that or didn't know that, now you know, and knowing is half the battle. Go, Joe. But there are four Gospels. I'm sorry, that's my era right there. I guess it's not the rest of your era. Um, Who's go Joe? Go Joe. Yeah, Joe. That was what they always said at the end. They always had these little public service announcements at the end. But I digress. Oh, okay. um, so point one, uh, the, the simplest question to ask and one of the hardest questions to often answer is uh, the little three letters of why. Why? Why are there four Gospels? And therein lies one of the unique opportunities of Bible study because we, with the exception of some of the information between the Samuels and the Chronicles, uh, I'm sorry, the Kings and the Chronicles, the Gospels are pretty unique in their relationship to one another in that they aren't just four different perspectives on the same amount of information. There's, there's some difference to them. Um, the, simplest, the simplest way to explain why, I would state, would be this, that there are different Christian, different Christian communities had different needs, okay? And as a result, uh, I want to unpack two of those needs. Point one, uh, this is 1A. The historical concern. They had a historical concern. Here's what I mean by that. They wanted to know who Jesus was, and they wanted to know what happened, right? So basically the, the same reason for which we'd read the newspaper, although that's kind of archaic, I guess. You, you read Google News or whatever it is that you look at on your phone or whatever the case may be, or go to Facebook, I guess, if you want a bunch of fake news. But you, you might you might look to some type of source to get that information. Bear in mind that these Gospels, and we're going to talk a little bit about this in a, in a minute, but this would kind of help explain this. These Gospels were written somewhere, the earliest, the first of the Gospels was written was probably about 20 years after Jesus was gone. 
So kind of, I want you to just for a moment, put yourself in, uh, like it, it, light up the fires of your imagination and kind of put yourself there. Let's say you saw something incredibly significant and you knew that it was incredibly significant when things actually happened. If you're anything like me, your first impulse wouldn't necessarily be, I got to make sure that I write this down, right? Because everybody else that was there with you would, be, would have witnessed it. They saw it too. Everybody saw it. You might talk about it a lot. There might be a ton of discussion. You might start telling other people about the things that you saw, but it probably wouldn't necessarily be your impulse to be the moment that this thing happened, go, I got to stop and write this down. It's only after a little bit of time elapses where people are going, you know what, it might be actually a pretty good idea if we write this stuff down and make sure that we've got it in a form that everybody else can get that stuff out there. That's why a lot of the times I will point to people just kind of as a sub point here, I'll point them first to the Gospel of Mark. My nickname for the Gospel of Mark is the comic book gospel because every single time that you see the beginning of like a story, uh, Mark always tries to make it seem really exciting, right? And immediately this happened. And then right after that, this happened. And then immediately this happened. So, but Mark um, moves the quickest of all the gospels. It spends the least amount of time in long discourses and gets the action out there. And interestingly enough, um, Mark is probably the first one that was written. And here, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But there was a historical concern for uh, getting the Gospels down in information. However, there was also a point B, big word, $20 word, the existential concern. And by existential, just write the word exist and then write ential after it. Exist, E-N-T-I-A-L. The and, and that's the best way to understand that word. They're, they had unique issues that were found within their own existence as a community. And each of these communities within their existence had some unique needs that they wanted to talk about. And that's what gave rise to the different Gospels. Let me unpack just a, a couple of understandings, and I'll do this a few times uh, of, the different, of the different Gospels. But um, the community that seems to be addressed most by the book of Matthew is the Jewish Christian community. If you, it's one of my favorite, I think it's probably my favorite gospel to read because it teaches me so much about Judaism. It's always pointing back to, and this is to fulfill this prophecy, and this is to fulfill that prophecy. And, and Matthew seems to be uniquely suited um, to focus his gospel on the Jewish Christian community and get that information down for the Jewishness of it. However, that then leaves open a huge community that's not being addressed, right? There's a whole lot of people surrounding those Jews that weren't Jews, and somebody had to write that down. So that's where um, the gospel of Luke seems to really kind of take up that burden. It seems to be focusing on the Gentile Christian community and you see this in the way as you start to, it, like maybe if I gave you that tip and then you dove into reading the book of Luke, you'd realize how often Luke tries to explain Jewish customs. I'll give you an example later when we kind of come to that again. But that kind of gives you that idea. But a unique community, the Gentile Christian community, needed some explanation. Finally, John um, John, who was writing much later, and again, I keep kind of going ahead and then jumping back and ahead and jumping back, but John most likely wrote his gospel maybe even up to about 40 years after the other ones that we've mentioned. 
But John was trying to address a specific problem as well, that by that point, there was a major theological heresy. And by that, I mean that uh, people were starting to believe something significantly wrong in their theology, and it was starting to compete against um, true Christianity, against Orthodox Christianity. And John wanted to pull some parts out of the story of Jesus that would really helpfully address those issues that were going on in that theological controversy. So, so all of that to just point out the reality that each of these individual communities needed something and that kind of gave rise for the author to go, you know what, I'm gonna write down the story of Jesus in a way that it would help address this community's concerns. Okay, follow me? We'll kind of talk a little bit more about um, those different uh, communities and how the different gospels address that. Uh, but there are four, remember, we're answering the question, why are there four Gospels? So um, point, B, they, point B, they contain both information about Jesus and of Jesus. About Jesus and of Jesus. Now here's the thing. Jesus never wrote down a Gospel, right? We don't have the Gospel of Jesus. Okay, we don't in Orthodox Christianity have the Gospel of Jesus. Yeah. I should prepare you for the reality that there are, um, there are people that have attempted through the years to write down what they term as the gospel of Jesus. But if you look in, remember we talked about the presuppositions of what we'd be talking about. If you look in the Protestant Christian Bible that most likely you're holding a copy of, you won't find the gospel of Jesus, right? But instead, we find these unique stories that are both about Jesus, telling the story of Jesus, who he is, where he came from, what he did, and we get information from Jesus, chronicling the things that Jesus said, chronicling the interactions that Jesus had with other people, and they're interwoven within the story. It's almost similar to a combination if you were to take the book of Acts and the epistles of Paul. So a significant portion of the book of Acts focuses on the missionary journeys of Paul. And so that's where we get a lot of the information about Paul. That's where we learned things about Paul. That's where we learn his conversion story. That's where we learn the churches uh, that he was going to and what type of struggles he was facing there. But it's in his epistles, in his writings, in his letters, that we start to get the information of Paul, the things that he wanted to say to people. If you combine those two ideas, that's kind of what you get in the Gospels. You get both information about and information of Jesus. So uh, each of them kind of being unique along those lines. Um, let's see, we're on point two. Do we get all those blanks so far? Okay. So then let's talk a little bit about the historical context of the Gospels. And when it comes down to this, uh, what I've been trying to do each of these weeks is, is trying to point to you how to get the historical context on your own. Um, but when it comes to this stuff, some of these things I want to just go ahead and give it to you. And not that I want you to make, not that I want to make you somehow dependent upon my notes or something like that, but sometimes it's just easier to talk about these things ahead of time. Um, because it's such significant information. However, there's a ton of information, so I am going to kind of keep my foot slammed down on the accelerator. If I go too fast, stop me, okay? Stop me. Tell me to pump the brakes, and we'll, we'll go back to that. But um, I want to give you a lot of information that I think are, is helpful to understanding the Gospels. 
So in terms of the historical context, you must understand point A, first century Judaism. If you're anything like me and you don't remember how numbers work um, in terms of the century, that means the stuff that was from zero to 100, right? So that first century. I always have to think backwards, you know, when I think like the 18th century talks about the, the 1700s. Yeah, I, get, I always get really confused with that. So let's just be clear what we're talking about. You got to understand what Jews were like between zero and 100 in order to understand what was going on. Now, do you have to understand that to understand the Gospels? No, just like we've said with all of these things, the Holy Spirit can do whatever he darn well pleases and could give you all kinds of insight. However, if you want to see in the brilliant color in which these Gospels are written, understanding first century Judaism is really important. There are three things that I want to point out to you that are of the utmost importance to first century Judaism. Point one, you need to understand the backdrop of the Hebrew people. So that should be kind of without, you know, without thinking too hard. If you're going to understand Judaism, you got to know who the Jews are, right? Now, um, Judaism has, has kind of taken on both an ethnicity idea and a religious idea. Those ideas were not really separate back in the day. They were one in the same. And so that's why sometimes I think it's just easier to talk about the Hebrew people. The people that God collected for himself, revealed himself on Sinai, and uh, put them in the land of Israel. That's who we're talking about. You got to know who they are. And these important concepts here that I just left in your parentheses, you got to know a little bit about the Hebrew law. You've got to know about their conquest story, what it meant to take over Israel. You've got to know what it, what it meant when they got exiled, when they didn't keep up their end of the covenant, and God allowed them to be taken into captivity multiple times over, and what that meant for the prophecies that then led itself to Matthew pointing back going, hey, and this refers to this prophecy, and this refers to that prophecy. See how you, if you understood that stuff, how much more vibrant the story of the Gospels would be. Number two, you need to know a little bit about the Roman occupation, the Roman occupation. Now, as you dive in on your own to kind of study the exile, you'll realize that the, the Hebrews constantly were going through this process of not keeping up their end of the covenant, God using some other nation to come decimate them and taking portion of them, or sometimes all of them, or taking over their nation, them repenting, God allowing something better to happen, some of them coming back, um, or them to have a little bit of autonomy, only to have the cycle return again. So during that period of zero to 100, that first century, um, the nation that was really in charge of the Hebrew people were the Romans. The Roman Empire is something that you could spend your entire life studying and you would not uh, plumb the depths. I'm not saying that you need to know everything about the Roman Empire. However, knowing a bit about how they thought and their relationship to the Jews is pretty important. Um, and we, we see some of those um, flecks of light when we look at especially the crucifixion narrative is where we start to pick it up the most and, and how that there was such a political drama that played out around Jesus' crucifixion that as a younger man, I completely was like I was just oblivious to it. I just fast forward to the part where Jesus dies on the cross for my sins. But there's so much that's going on even within the Gospels that's there that makes that story even more significant and beautiful. So understanding that relationship to the Rome is important. Point three, 
And this is really where uh, the crux of the issue truly lies, the expectations of the Jewish Messiah, the expectations of the Jewish Messiah. Um, the gospel writers make no bones about the reality that they're pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. To understand what the Messiah is, that's something that is a crucial point of distinction. There's still people today, I got the honor recently, I don't know if you guys know who Ben Shapiro is, he's a pretty sharp tack if you don't know him, um, but he recently hosted on his uh, show, he has like a longer show where he'll bring on prominent uh, speakers. And so he interviewed uh, one of my teachers by the name of William Lane Craig, who's one of the smartest Christians that, that roams the earth uh, right now. And it, it was interesting to see them dialogue about the, the nature of Jesus being the Messiah. They didn't talk very long about it. It, got to, it was clearly a point of um, discomfort to discuss as part of their show. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that that becomes the crucial issue, right? You have a guy that's Ben Shapiro that you and I, we could stand, Ben would probably do a better job on a college campus debating the existence of God than even I could. Um, and I've invested a lot of time and money into it. However, where Ben and I would differ what is, was Jesus the Messiah? And they discuss the issue of what Ben was expecting, and Ben is reflective of a certain group of Jews that also see the same, of what the Messiah was supposed to be and why Jesus was not that person. And it's, it becomes such a, a crucial concept to think about what Jesus was as the Messiah. And let me just give you this one tip as you start that exploration on your own. Jesus, whatever you want to say about the Jewish Messiah, Jesus was not the Messiah that the Jews thought that he would be, okay? And that became the, the key point of tension between Jesus' relationship with the Hebrew people. He was not the Messiah that they expected him to be. A good introduction to Ben Shapiro on YouTube is his interview with John MacArthur. That is also a very, very interesting and powerful. Yeah, I watched that one as well. Yeah, with John MacArthur. That one's, that one's fun like as well. Because like you said, Ben Shapiro is a believer in Yahweh. Definitely. Uh, and he, he is rooted in the Old Testament. He's rooted in the Ten Commandments. He's a moral, God-fearing man mm -hmm. without... But the key issue is, is Jesus the Messiah? And he would explain to you why he does not believe that he could be the Messiah. But that becomes, as a result, a key, a key distinction. Okay. So you got to understand a little bit about first century Judaism. Point B, you got to understand a little bit th about the timing of the Gospels, okay? Um, I've already alluded to this, so this is really where I'm going to kind of push down on the gas pedal. Um, but remember that for 20 years, this, the stories of Jesus were being shared just orally, right? Everybody saw it. They were, they were standing there. Now, that doesn't mean that epistles weren't being written during that time frame, uh, most of us recognize that, or most New Testament scholars would indicate that some of the epistles were written during this time frame, but the Gospels weren't, were not yet written because everybody was dialoguing about this information. Um, the, uh, the Gospel authors, um, they, they end up providing that story. Um, let me back up here. This oral tradition that's mostly being passed on focused, uh, focused more on the things that Jesus said than the things that Jesus did. 
what became important for them to feel like they had to pass on was the things that Jesus taught. Because remember, the initial movement of the church was happening within the Jewish people, which were heavily dependent upon oral tradition as a culture anyway. And a lot of them were treating Jesus as a great rabbi. Um, and we won't get into that huge, that huge concept there, but what was most important from a rabbi were the things that he said, not necessarily the things that he did. Um, and so as a result, when they started writing these things down, you might get different, you might get the same saying of Jesus showing up in different circumstances. I don't know if you've ever tried to compare um, portions of the Gospels that you've read and you have a saying that seems to pop up in this circumstance over here and a saying that seems to pop up in a different circumstance over there. And I've heard a variety of explanations for that. Maybe J Jesus had a couple sayings that he liked repeating, right? I mean, that's something that we're used to. And that's, we steal the, I always steal Wayne's, the devil doesn't care which side of the horse you fall off of. You know, I, but that, that saying may show up in a variety of different messages, or you might say it in a conversation with somebody at a coffee shop or a sermon over here, or you might be talking to some prisoners over there and you might use that same. Th so it's entirely possible that Jesus did that. And it's also entirely possible that there, that, um, that, what was more important for them to get down in writing was what Jesus said and not necessarily focus so much on the, were there six guys there or were there five guys there? Whatever was important is that there was about a group about that size that was there. And it becomes, uh, the reason why I'm bringing this up is that um, if, if you've ever dialogued with somebody that has tried to use the Bible to refute the Bible, they will try to point or pull apart discrepancies that they will find. Well, see, it says this over here, but then it says that over there, and that's a problem. Well, what I'm trying to draw for you is a bigger picture, not a big excuse, but a bigger picture of understanding as to what the Gospels were and what the things were, what was going on in the minds of the Gospel writers so that their priorities were not necessarily the same thing as maybe your science textbook would be. And that's kind of the key distinction that becomes important, is understanding that they were building these based upon an oral tradition. Um, and you'll also, you also need to recognize that in the timing of the Gospels, not everything is written down in chronological order. I don't know if he knew this, but just because something happens in Matthew 12, that doesn't necessarily mean that Matthew 13 happened the next day. So sometimes there is some overlap. Sometimes we go a little bit into the future and then we come back. Sometimes, uh, sometimes it does follow chronology for a while and then it jumps back to talk about something else. And then, so don't assume that just because the chapters are increasing in number that they're following a, a chronology because that's not inherent to the design of the gospel writers. And then remember that theology, um, especially in John's gospel, he's addressing theological problems. This is point B2 here. He's addressing theological problems that were arising within the time of his writings. Uh, this is 2B2. Um, and those theological problems were one of his primary concerns. And so at that point, not worrying about chronology was not quite as important as worrying about ensuring that those problems were getting addressed by the way uh, that Jesus had taught. Um, that's why John focuses a whole lot more on the things that Jesus said, and, but, but clearly draws them within a certain historical context as well. 
All right, next part. The historical context, it's also important to recognize that different parts of the Gospels address different audiences even within the Gospels. So even though we talked about Christian communities each kind of having almost their own unique Gospel to address their own unique existential needs, within the Gospels, different portions were addressed to different groups of people, okay? And I just, instead of doing blanks for this, I just wanted to go through this because it, if you're familiar at all with the context of the Gospels, most of these should be familiar. Some of the stuff of the Gospels was addressed to the inner ring of the 12, right? So these were Jesus. These were the hardcore. These were his commandos. These were the guys that were with him all the time. And some of the stuff, only those 12 guys heard it. Only those guys got the opportunity. That's why, and you see it towards the end of John, if you have a red letter Bible, there's a heck of a lot of red lettering at the end of John. Because for chapters of John, one of the only guys that was actually there to write it down, to actually hear it, then turns to write it all down for everybody. Point B, some stuff was addressed to general followers. And I wrote references here. You can double check me here, but... um, when Matthew records Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain, it starts by Jesus sitting down and seeing the crowds. These are people, you remember that there were way more than just 12 people following Jesus around. Jesus was a, a three-winged circus. There were, at times, thousands of people surrounding Jesus, right? Jesus fed 5,000 men, and most would indicate that that probably means that that was probably somewhere around 15,000 people during the feeding of the 5,000, if, if everybody had a wife and a kid that was following them at that time. There were thousands of people walking around with Jesus at times. So sometimes the content of the gospel, the content of what you're studying, you need to recognize it might be to a broader group of people than just those 12. And that might change some of the significance of the passage. Some of it, point C, is to religious leaders. That's, that shouldn't be shocking to you. Sometimes Jesus specifically talks to religious leaders. Sometimes it's to Jewish Christians. Um, oh, I, I, scoot, I skipped one. I, I'm sure a pastor at some point in your life has pointed out point D, that some of what Jesus said actually was to you and I directly, right? When John writes down the, a portion of the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, I'm praying this not just for them, but also for those who will follow me as a result of their words. Jesus specifically addressing the next point to us. That was pretty neat. Yeah, that was like the only part of the Bible that we get to make an appearance in. But nonetheless, um, then some of the stuff is to Jewish Christians. Some of the stuff is to Gentile Christians. Here's the point. Here's why I'm drawing all of this out. Obviously... A 12-year-old reading the Gospels doesn't need to necessarily know all of this stuff. But if you're going to dive into trying to understand the significant, especially when you get to hermeneutics, you've got to do your work ahead of time to make sure that you know the group that Jesus is addressing or the group that's being addressed by that portion of the Gospel to then try to get uh, the bigger points that's going on. So remember the various uh, audiences, and this is going back to uh, the unique communities. Remember the various audiences for the gospel writers. In addition to that, last point of historical context here, um, each gospel author seems to explore certain themes and tries to draw out things in his gospel. Um, uh, A quick Google search would 
um, cause you to land on this stuff as well, but just in case you haven't run across this, Matthew seems to focus on Jesus as king, specifically king of the Jews. Um, and you could see why that would make such an important point when Matthew's gospel is primarily to Jewish Christians, pointing out to them as a result that Jesus is the Messiah that they're looking for, that Jesus is the king in the line of David. So there's a theme there that constantly shows itself, the kingliness of Jesus. Mark seems to be pointing out Jesus as the suffering servant. And that's an interesting thing that I'm just going to kind of throw out there and um, let you explore at a later time. Why Mark does that is a unique study in and of itself, um, but seems to explore and as a result continue to have the theme of Jesus as suffering servant. Luke seems to explore Jesus as the son of man, the son of man and savior of all. Now, son of man is a unique Jewish term um, referring to the Messiah as referenced in some Old Testament prophecies. But then to relate why Jesus as the son of man becomes the savior of all, not just the Jews. That's a, and you could see why that would be a unique point for a gospel specifically written to the Gentile Christian community. It's important for them to recognize they didn't have to be Jews in order to receive that which Jesus did. Finally, John seems to explore mostly that Jesus is the Son of God, right? Not seems to. John uh, is unique in the Gospel writers where he uniquely tells us why he wrote this stuff down. Hey, I'm writing this down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's great. John tells us, hey, look, this is my point. If you see anything else, you're wrong. That's what I want you to get. Jesus is the Son of God. But... He also seems to explore the great I am statements. John spends a lot of time working with Jesus, starting phrases with I am. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. And this I am exploration seems to undergird Jesus as the son of God. That, um, and I don't want to like fry your brains too much. I'm not saying that, yeah, I, I don't want to, fill with too much content, but a lot of that has to do with that theological controversy that John was needing to address during that time frame. Um, more of that if you're interested in your, on your own at some other time. But I know that I'm at fire hose level right now, so I don't want to necessarily give you everything and anything. Um, <laughs> okay, so let's look a little bit about uh, the literary context just real quickly before we jump into some hermeneutical considerations. We're doing good on time. I want to throw a term out for you that will make you feel like a Bible scholar, but it's important for you, maybe not important for you to know, but I think it's helpful for you to know. that there. That I want you to know the term the synoptic gospels. I just went ahead and wrote it down on your sheet there. That's your important word. The synoptic gospels, point one, is a reference to Matthew, Mark, and Luke in contrast to the gospel of John. So the first three Gospels, in the order in which you have them in your Protestant Bible, are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are referred to as the synoptic Gospels, whereas John is often separated from the synoptic Gospels. So most scholars would agree that the Gospels were written. You should understand that not everybody agrees on this, but most would agree that they were written in the following order, um, that Mark was written first. Uh, Mark is the shortest. Uh, Mark uh, seems to be most concerned with 
focusing on just copying down that which Jesus did, focusing a little bit less on what Jesus said, although having both. However, point B, what we found is that Matthew and Luke, Matthew and Luke utilized Mark and the, and here's where you're going to be super Bible scholars, and the quote unquote Q documents. Okay. Now, this is not a major problem. I, I remember the first time that I taught this to a college group, and I um, don't want to go on record as to where I was or what representative university was the closest to it, but I had some people that really struggled with this concept, that the gospel writers referred to other gospel or another gospel writer when they were writing down their text. It would be pretty difficult to explain why there's so much similarity um, between the relationships of Matthew to Mark and Luke to Mark. There's a lot of similarities between those, but then each, Ma each of those, Matthew and Luke, kind of have their own um, angle that they like to take their information, and that's because of those unique communities. That's because of those unique themes that we've already talked about, but they seem to use Matthew's uh, flow of story and a lot of similarities, sometimes down to just the exact word-for-word -word stuff being written down. However, there also is a reference to the Q documents, okay? If you are, um, if this is like super nerdy, it is super Bible nerdy, but um, you don't have to necessarily memorize this. But Q uh, stands for German uh, quell. I don't know how to speak German, so I don't know how to pronounce the word quell, Q-U-E-L-L-E. Um, which I can't even remember what that means in German. But essentially what it comes down to is, remember how I told you that for about 20 years, people were, uh, they were passing on what Jesus said, right? There is a theory. I'm not saying that this, for, this happened for a fact, but there is a theory that before the gospels were written down, a group or an individual sat down and started to write down that oral tradition. Like during that time frame where people were saying, hey, we should probably start to write this stuff down. This is obviously going to be important for our community to have this in writing. That somebody wrote down that information um, and it focused primarily just on Jesus' teachings because that was what was reflected in the oral teachings. Now I've said to you that Mark focuses less on what Jesus said when compared with Matthew and Luke. And so you can see how it would make sense that if Matthew and Luke were going to be referencing sources of information, they'd reference Mark's flow of how things were happening historically, but they'd refer to, if it exists, they'd refer to this collection of Jesus' sayings. And they would, if they were going to focus more on what Jesus said, that's where they would find that information to make sure that that stuff was recorded accurately. Particles of these there are no particles. This is purely a theory. You should understand that this is just a theory of New Testament scholars. Um, but the reason for that theory is that the sections that Matthew and Luke, again, this is just super Bible nerdy stuff. You obviously don't have to have this information. But this, there are sections of Matthew and Luke that are not obviously from Mark, but are almost exactly similar to one another in their relationship to one another in terms of the stuff that Jesus said. The wording was, is really similar. And so the theory of most New Testament scholars is that they may be referencing this source material 
Um, obviously, it's a German theory. That's why it's got that German, uh, German title to it. But referencing the, that uh, source material of what Jesus said to compose their Gospels. Okay? All of that is just to draw out this point. Like I told you, that was all super Bible nerdy stuff that's not that crucial. Just to point out the relationship between Matthew, Mark, and Luke is a real tight one. Okay? That's why they're referred to as the Synoptic Gospel. The Synoptic Gospels. They are in a group in and of themselves, um, creating a synopsis. That's where that word comes from. A, 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 somebody give me a synonym for synopsis. A conclusion, a... Um, I should have written down some ideas before I got there. Are you guys not familiar with that word synopsis? Like a, like a, yeah, summary. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, trying to make sure that all the key points are written down. Okay. John is unique, right? I told you that independently, probably about 30 years later, John was writing his gospel sometime in the nineties, whereas Mark was probably like late fifties, early sixties. Matthew and Luke sometime in the 60s, okay? So John wrote independently 30 years later, and we've referred to multiple times that he had a very independent purpose. He had a very different intention for writing down the story of Jesus. Now, you, might, you do get some parallels. That doesn't mean that there's completely new information in John, and, and there's no relationship to the Synoptic Gospels. But if you were to try to compare Matthew and John, you'll notice that they're pretty different from one another. Whereas if you compared Matthew and Luke, they actually have a lot more similarities with one another. Okay? So understanding those relationships to each of the Gospels and their relationships to each other um, helps you kind of understand the literary context and flow as they're going through. At this point, I want to take a quick pause and just say, if this at all seems like way too collegiate level, it's because it is, right? Like, I'm trying to make sure that you get your money's worth right now. Do not feel like you have to have all this stuff nailed to pick up the Gospels and start working with them. That is not true at all. I'm giving you like real high level stuff because it, even if you... Um, I mean, this is just a, a, an analogy in terms of showing you where I'm weak right now. I started studying jujitsu like a little, bit, a little bit less than a year ago. And there are some instructors that when they come in and start teaching stuff, they actually will use the term. It's like, learning, it's like trying to learn this from a fire hose, like drinking from a fire hose. And I keep telling myself, because my brain is going, I can't possibly process everything that you're trying to say. I keep trying to tell myself, even if a fire hose is spraying in my face, a little bit of water is getting in my mouth. Okay, and that's what that's what I'm trying to do. I'm spraying that fire hose at you. You have your notes to be able to go back and refer to, but I guarantee that a little bit of water is going to be getting in your mouth, and that little bit of water is going to make going back to the Gospels significantly more exciting when you start to see these things. Okay, so don't feel intimidated. We're doing good, doing good. All right, uh, hermeneutical considerations. Notice, I am not going to try to tell you everything that you possibly could need for proper hermeneutics in the Gospels. That in and of itself is a doctoral degree. I, I, I'm not equipped to do that. Uh, that's something you could spend your entire life doing and probably still not do it very well. Just a few considerations for the journey, okay? Point one, you need to remember that there are all kinds of interpretational games being played with Jesus' words and actions, 
right? There's, and as a result of that, different denominations have formed, different cults have formed. Everybody, there's no simple, there's no figure. It doesn't matter if you are religious or non, if you are a theologian or not. All people recognize there is no more significant figure in Western history than Jesus of Nazareth. No one argues that, okay? And so as a result, if you are the most crucial figure in Western history, um, you're going to be a, a somewhat divisive character when it comes down to things. And people don't know often what to do with Jesus', Jesus words or actions. You know, are, are they even just a couple of problems that, that point up here? Are, are Jesus' words a new law? Like, did Jesus just show up on the scene and say, okay, well, the old, that's the old law, but I'm going to give you a new law. Um, or what starts to even drive people crazy is that Jesus loved using hyperbole. He loved using exaggeration for a point. But then people are trying to figure out, well, what does that actually mean? Like, when Jesus says that I'm supposed to gouge my own eye out, like, I, I mean, are we, are we going to be eye-patch Christians? Or what is that even? Yeah, yeah, you might, that's just crazy cannibalism, right? What is, what is Jesus' deal at that point? Um, I, here's, here's a part of the, the study tonight that I'm going to diverge a little bit from this book. But I'm going to share for you that I think that a lot of the proper understanding of what Jesus' words and actions are really comes down to what Jesus meant by Matthew, what Matthew records in Matthew five seventeen. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. I think that if you spent some theological time camping out on what that actually means, you will be well equipped to try to deal with Jesus' words and actions. Let me, by way of just exposing you to that conversation, share with you some, some important concepts of how I think that that phrase probably should be taken. Number one, that when Jesus said that I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, he, he was the fulfillment of the law's intent. The fulfillment of the law's intent. He was showing us the heart of God. We know for a fact well, okay, theologically speaking, it's not a very difficult argument to make. Remember when we talked about Acts last week and we talked about uh, the vision that God gave Peter that essentially allowed Peter to break some, some of the Old Testament laws in terms of what could be eaten and who he could interact with. Now, was God, um, was God contradicting himself? No, I don't think so at all. I think instead... God always had a specific intent behind the laws that he gave. It, what was crucial for the people to understand was the intent behind those laws. Um, and that's why Jesus became somewhat of a controversial figure, right? Look how often Jesus fought with the religious leaders over the concept of the Sabbath. The Sabbath became a linchpin argument and, and ended up being one of the major reasons for which the Pharisees were successful were successful in prosecuting Jesus under their law was his failure to comply with Sabbath regulation, where Jesus instead showed, look, I'm going to show you what the Sabbath actually was all about. And some crucial conversations occurred pertaining to that Sabbath concept. So when Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, he was actually showing them in both his words and actions, the law's intent. 
But not just that, and to get to a point that you're probably more familiar with, he also fulfilled the law's requirement. And this is why I love the book of Hebrews. Romans is a good uh, companion book to the book of Hebrews. But so much of those books are devoted to teaching us as followers of Christ how Jesus fulfilled the requirement of the Old Testament law. And Hebrews draws it out in some really beautiful pictures, taking the Old Testament pictures that were required under the Levitical law and then showing how Jesus fulfilled those things. And as a result, provided us justification for redemption. Go. How far before um, Jesus came on the scene was the Old Testament written? Different books were written at different time frames, but if I was to basically give you a really wide span of time, so the most uh, Jews would put a closure to the last book of the Old Testament about 300 years before Jesus was born, roughly speaking. Okay, so that's just, but that's just the last book that's within our Old Testament. There are obviously books that are significantly older than that in the Old Testament. Might be somewhere, it might even be somewhere about 1,500 to 2,000 years before Jesus. The question is, when was the Septuagint translated? The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Yeah. Um, I don't want to be quoted on this, but I want to say that it's roughly, roughly about 200 years before Jesus was born. The Old Testament could be recognized as a collection of writings by 400 BC, (coughs) after Malachi's prophecies. Yeah, uh, probably closer to 300 BC, but around that time frame. Yeah, yeah. And then it it took like another 50 to 75, maybe even 100 years for them to go, hey, let's translate this to Greek. I know they don't call it, but there was basically a canon of Old Testament books. Correct, yeah. Yeah, and I unfortunately don't have those numbers memorized. I'd have to refer to the notes, but that's, that gives you the ish that you were looking for. That. So anywhere between 300 and 2,000 years before. Well, in terms of how old the books are. Right. So Job appears to be the oldest book, and that could be anywhere around 1,500 to 2,000 years before Jesus was born. But it was considered... The, the Old Testament collection of books, the canon, was, was considered a closed deal about 300 years before Jesus was born. Does that answer your question close enough? Okay, cool. All right. Finally, so let's say you understand the, the, the difficulty that can come from the interpretational games of Jesus. Let's say that you now stand on theological rock-solid ground of that Matthew 5.17, but to fulfill the law phrase, I would argue to you that you cannot understand Jesus' words effectively until you understand point C, the kingdom of God. It was, it was a completely forsaken topic in my Christian upbringing. Um, I felt so jilted by the time I was finally exposed to this. Um, I thought Jesus... According to my Christian upbringing, what Jesus told me about far more often um, was how to spend my money and how to be sexually pure, because that's basically what I kind of heard about. Now, the truth is, Jesus does talk about those things. Don't get me wrong. He does talk about those things. But I, I, I got gypped on my understanding of what Jesus was actually talking about, because what he talks about far and away more than anything else 
is the kingdom of God. And as a result, if we do not understand the kingdom of God, or at least at minimum, don't go with the glasses on constantly looking for what Jesus is trying to teach us about the kingdom of God, we will miss the point of Jesus' message. And as a result, he'll just be, he'll, he'll, he'll just be another Confucius or um, you know, that somebody just out there spitting out these great um, one-liners that end up on the little tags of your tea bag. As opposed, you know, Jesus was so significantly more than just that moral teacher, right? But if it, yes, etched on a pillow or a cross stitch in a frame in your grandma's house or whatever the case may be. But if you, if you start to explore the kingdom of God, you realize that that's what Jesus wanted to talk about the most. And that intertwines so much of what I've said is important in terms of understanding the Hebrew people understanding their relationship to the, the exile or to Rome being in charge of them, understanding their concept of the Messiah, understanding their, uh, understanding their concept of what the Messiah would bring them. All of that is relevant to the understanding of the kingdom of God. And so as a result, I have no blanks here. But point one, it's discussed more by Jesus than anything else. Point two, as a result... It is the point of most significant theological disagreement regarding the kingdom, right? We, we have a variety of denominations as a result of it. Um, people have, um, I mean, gosh, there are 17,000 different kinds of Baptist churches. And part of that is just because Baptists don't know how to get along with one another. I say that as a recovering Baptist. But the other part is that they disagreeing on parts like that in terms of the kingdom of God and how they relate to it. Um, the, the area in which I was first exposed at least to my gaping hole in my theology was shown to me. I just put the title of this book here. Um, if you haven't read The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard, I would encourage you to do so. Um, I think it's very accessible. I think it's uh, very useful. It does take a little bit of work to get through just because it's like four or 500 pages and some people sometimes get really intimidated. There's no pictures. <laughs> But it's, it's, even though Dallas Willard was, a, was an absolute brilliant man, um, who I was glad to at least shake his hand before he died, uh, he, um, he had a way of talking to the church in which they could understand. Um, and I would, I would go so far as to say that Dallas Willard in our day was what C.S. Lewis was in his day. Um, and so um, explore that book. If you, if you can, I would encourage you to do so. Um, and he will really point to you specifically through the Sermon on the Mountain. That's kind of the core of that book. Um, specifically through those chapters talking about what that means about the kingdom of God and our relationship to it. Um, opened up a lot of my eyes to that. Okay, so that being said, I want to spend the last portion of our time together making a special note on parables. Um, parables have a tendency to be a little bit problematic. I pulled a quote from our book here that I thought was um, uh, kind of, it made me smile at least. The parables have suffered a fate of misinterpretation in the church, second only to the book of Revelation, right? People, people do all kinds of fun things with parables, um, and just like they would do all kinds of fun things with the book of Revelation. Um, it, it, if we're going to talk about how Jesus uses parables, we should probably talk about 
what Jesus said about using parables, um, if we're going to talk about parables. So let's real quick um, uh, look at the book of Mark, chapter 4. He's doing a great job. Freaking out over no, he's not. If that's your, if that's freaking out, yeah, he's, yeah, giant smile. You're talking about me. I'll show you. So, so right after Jesus told the parable of the sower, which is probably better referred to as the parable as of the soils, right? The sower is going out there and hucking seeds, and he's talking about the different kinds of dirt onto which that seed could land. Um, Jesus has this conversation, um, and it's important. Remember how we've, we've pointed out in understanding historical context and literary context, we, we're told initially who Jesus is talking to here in verse 10. When he was alone, those around him with the 12, okay? So these are the hardcore insiders, the people into whom Jesus was going to invest the most time and energy because these were going to be the guys upon which he was going to build his church as a whole, okay? So speaking to those guys, he said to them, to you, so to those specific 12, it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. My friends, I tell you, the first time that I read that passage, and probably even up to the fifth to tenth time I read that passage, it drove me nuts. It abraded me because essentially what it sounds like Jesus is saying in his answer is, hey, it's my job to tell these people a secret because if they actually found out the truth, they would turn and be forgiven. Do you see that in the passage? Like if you didn't have the information that I'm about to share with you, it would look like Jesus is saying, well, if I taught them in anything else, they might actually get saved. And we don't want that, <laughs> right? That, that becomes a, a problematic vision of Jesus. I don't care what version of theology you want to adhere to, okay? Let's pull this apart real quick in our understanding of why Jesus used parables. Number one, and I want to point this out before I start diving in because I always, my brain always wants to point in, uh, to start diving into the answer. But don't miss the point one here that grace precedes understanding. Grace precedes understanding. My intellectual brain just wants to dive into the black and white, but you cannot forget the beautiful picture of grace that's being drawn here. Why are you teaching in parables? Jesus first says, to you it has been given. Grace is what starts the process. Okay? So it was given by grace to those 12, the secret of the kingdom of God. But... Point two, for those on the outside, or are you on your blank sheet? You want to make sure you don't miss blanks. But for those on the outside, you have to understand that there are two different, oh, I'm sorry, I chopped off a word of your phrase there. There are two different people groups. We've got insiders and we've got outsiders. And in a moment, we're going to see who Jesus is referring to in terms of these insiders and outsiders. But there's two different groups. That's important to draw out that fact because this is an anti-American concept, isn't it? An American concept would say we're all the same. We're all equal. We all get the same chance. We all get the same, we all have the same boots that we are able to pull, pull on in order to get ourselves to a certain spot. No, 
that's not the truth. There are those on the inside and there are those on the outside. And that may still be a difficult concept to deal with, especially if we don't understand what Jesus is doing with verse 12. So that, quote, they may indeed, notice how if you have ESV, you've got quotation marks there. They may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now my Bible, which typically does me a favor of pointing to what Jesus might be referring to, does not point to the fact that Jesus is referring to something. I don't know if your Bible does something. Some of you have got some more extensive study Bibles. But it may, you may find in your notes about that section that Jesus is paraphrasing Isaiah 6, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Turn over to there if you can. Isaiah chapter 6. Mm, basically the middle of your Bible. Probably if you pulled the direct middle, you'd probably land in Isaiah. Psalms. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. The next big book for the <laughs> there you go. Go to chapter 6. Probably the most quoted and referred to section of the book of Isaiah is Isaiah 6, right? And we're not going to read the initial part, but Jesus, or I'm sorry, Isaiah gets some coals touched to his lips. God's saying, who, who can I send? Isaiah says, send me. He gets purified. And then we, get, we start in verse, verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then he said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, Okay, so back it up. Stop right there. This is Isaiah, right? Isaiah is a prophet of God. Most likely, to what people group is he speaking? Jews, right? Hebrew people, okay? So Isaiah is speaking to Hebrew people, okay? And he's saying this. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. Stop there. I told you earlier that to try to understand what Jesus teaches, it's helpful to understand the Jewish concept of exile because so much of the Jewish story had to do with the fact that they kept messing up and God would punish them by sending them away. Jesus is referring to one of the most famous prophecies of Isaiah in which Isaiah is being told by God, go tell the people, hey, you're hearing the information but you're not listening. You're seeing the truth, but you're not actually seeing. Your hearts are dull, and as a result, I'm sending you into exile again. This common story of the, of the people of Israel. Notice that Jesus is using this concept. Remember, the group of the 12, they're all Jews as well. They would know this story. They would know that backdrop. They would know that every time the people of Israel turn their heart against God, that things go bad for them, right? That when Isaiah was making this pronouncement, it wasn't saying, hey, I hope that you guys change your mind. 
it, he was saying, your mind obviously cannot be changed. I've tried as many times as I possibly can. Punishment time is coming. Okay? Jesus is quoting this passage in explanation as to why he's using parables. And it's interesting to look at Jesus was most likely speaking not in Greek, but speaking in Aramaic to try to understand the word parable, the, the closest cognates or the closest um, similar words are the words for riddles or puzzles. Essentially, what Jesus is providing as part of his explanation is that, look, for you who are on the inside, you 12, you guys that are on the inside, you have received the grace that was necessary to understand this information effectively. But for those that are already on the outside, remember the two different groups, those that are already on the outside, they're too hard to be able to receive this information. And so they're getting it in this riddle form. Now, still, I think you could probably ask the question, why the riddle form? I would love to believe it's because when you hear a riddle, sometimes that challenges you to dig into that riddle a little bit more. I love that word subversive. Yeah, that's in his, is that in Work in the Angles? Or yeah, work, yeah, work in the I think it's Work in the Angles, yeah. Eugene Peterson, another guy I'm, I'm a giant fan of. Um, but that when you are exposed, here's what I'd like to answer. When you are exposed to a riddle, it causes you to, to dig deeper into that, right? I, have you ever heard a riddle before and you can't figure out the answer and, it, and you I almost get this like physical experience in my brain where like if there were gears there, they're grinding and there's like smoke that's coming as a result of out of my ears. But remember, Jesus is referring to the fact that he's talking to a people that he knows has already rejected him. Just like sending Isaiah to a people that he knew had already rejected Isaiah's message. And so telling these riddles was going to further confirm their their position against God. But I'd also love, and I'm just throwing this in, this is my own personal part, I'd also love to believe that maybe that was the method by which the Holy Spirit could twist, twist is the wrong word, could use that to try to drive that outsider a little bit deeper into that story to then come back and join yeah, those that were receiving that it, grace. Then there are some people all of a sudden what in the world are you talking about? And they got it. Mm-hmm. And it might be months down the road. Yeah. I remember picking up Bibles in hotels when I was younger and such and reading them and going, it doesn't even sound like English to me. It doesn't make sense. I don't understand a thing. And the more I looked at it, the more I rejected it because I couldn't understand it. Mm-hmm. But when I came to Christ, I started being able to understand it. Mm. So I like to think what you're thinking is true because that seems to have been the case with many people. Yeah. But then I also notice that friends I have that completely reject Jesus Christ also have the same complaint. I have no, that doesn't make sense. None of that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's all just a bunch of stories. None yeah. of that makes sense. Yeah. And there's, there's a theological concept to explore there that's often referred to as the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that it takes the work of God for us to truly start to receive that grace and understand that text. Um, but at the same time, the role um, to, keep, uh, to keep ourselves on the path here and not go too late, the role of the parable 
I, I guess I'm just trying to draw a bigger picture than what is commonly thought is that the parable is an example story. Um, the parable is not an example story. Jesus doesn't give us the right of understanding the parable as an example story. It's not a, um, like a pastor giving a message and then saying, and this is just like what happened when I talked to one of my four kids. Did you, do you know that I have four kids? And I have, you know, that type of thing. It's, it's, that's not what a parable is. A parable is an intentional riddle or puzzle to try to teach a deeper truth. And it has some key components that I want to finish up here with. Point, the parts of the parable, um, part C here. Um, the parable always has points of reference. Um, there are part, these are the parts of the story that relate to the point at hand. So Jesus often uses parable to drive his point home deeper for those to whom it has been given to understand the kingdom of God. Um, I gave an example here on your sheet that I thought we might have some time to unpack, but I'm not going to do that. But it's an easy parable to work with if you want to explore um, these ideas a little bit more. Um, if you look at Luke 7, verses 36 through 50, you get the story of Jesus at dinner at a prominent religious leader's house, and the town harlot comes in and cleans his feet with her tears and wipes with his hair, and the the guy whose house it is is like, if Jesus was really the big deal that everybody's saying that he is, he'd know exactly who this woman is and why this is such a fiasco that this is occurring. And instead of Jesus trying to teach what was going on initially or trying to respond to that, he tells this parable that essentially talks about people who, um, who feel more gratitude in their heart because of the extent to which they are forgiven. Okay? Um, and each of the parts of that parable seem to point out or pull out those different ideas. But here's the, the part of the parable that's most important. It's not just an example story. A parable always has an intended response. That's point two there. Um, you don't have a blank. Sorry. Uh, intended response. Um, how do the recipients of the parable, what are, how are they supposed to respond? In that example of that parable and how Jesus is using that, he's wanting his hearers to know that they don't have to be perfect in order to receive his forgiveness. He's wanting that religious leader to know that perfection is not going to be required to be one of his followers. Um, and that, um, that gratitude is, needs to be the response. And this woman had instead showed him exactly that which needed to be showed, much unlike what he had shown. Parables often or always have those points of reference, but always lead to an intended response. So to understand uh, parables a little bit better, um, and we'll just go through this real quickly because you basically have kind of heard this in different ways already. But point one, it's really helpful to understand Jewish customs, beliefs, social identities, understanding all of those different things. Jesus loved to pick easy references, but they were easy references for Jews. That requires a little bit more work on our part. If you're going to get why it was so significant for the town harlot to walk in and wash Jesus' feet at that time when Jesus' feet had not been washed, and why hadn't they been washed? And the major, um, the major all I can think of is dis, the, the major disrespect that it was that Jesus' feet had not yet been washed. 
for the fact that he came in and that Jesus instead wanting to, not addressing that issue, but addressing the woman's gratitude. I mean, to, when you get those, when you get those little customary ideas, uh, so much more, it's like, uh, it's like seeing initially the parable just in black and white, but then once you study it, it's, it's in brilliant color. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't even have one of your servants wash my feet. And that's a thing. Thank you for that smile. Because she was the first washer. I don't know, but she. Um, the, the point that Jesus likes to draw out there is that there was. Yeah, I don't want to really dive into the huge thing, but there was such a controversy that his feet weren't even washed by that point. Like they should have been. Um, and so, but you pick that stuff up when you start to study through using your Bible dictionaries, using your, your, uh, your, the research that you do on these different customs, you start to pick up some of that interesting stuff. It's also important that point two, that you understand the audience. Um, this is the sub point. Is this parable being told to disciples? Is it being told to outsiders? Is it being told to religious leaders, right? Because each of them, I've told you, a parable always has an intended response. But given the circumstances, there are times in which Jesus wants a certain response from his religious leaders, and that might be different than the type of response he might want from his disciples. And so understanding who's hearing that parable becomes really important. I guess I just point this out because a lot of the times, at least my temptation, maybe it's never been your temptation, but my temptation is to just for is to just dive to the parable and to look at it like a fable, like this is a story with like a moral at the ending. And the problem is, what I'm doing at that point is imposing my own understanding of how that parable was to be used, and that's not fair. It's not fair to Jesus. It's not fair to Jesus' words. Instead, I got to understand something about the Jews and how, or the religious leaders, or the disciples, or whoever was receiving that message and picking that stuff up so that I can get that. Because that then leads to uh, the way in which we do hermeneutics. I really like um, how this book, um, How to Read the Bible, All It's Worth, kind of pointed out that the hermeneutics of the parable um, creates in us something that, it's not a common practice, um, but we have to translate the parable into our own context if we're really gonna get the meaning. Because once you've done the historical work of getting that Jewish concept, then you start to look at um, uh, you start to look at what are what are our current uh, analogs, what are our current uh, similar situations in which we have these different components. Um, so I, I want to make this as simple as one, two, three in terms of doing hermeneutics with parables. Simple as one, two, three. Point one: We have to start with the purpose that the parable was used by the gospel author. So remember I told you that it wasn't necessarily uh, chronology and sometimes the circumstances weren't crucial in understanding the, uh, the idea of the message. Luke 15 is a perfect example where Luke takes three different sections of Jesus. Maybe he taught it all together, maybe he didn't. I'm not entirely sure, but there's no question that Jesus, or there are three different uh, parables that Jesus tells about lost things, lost sheep, lost coin, prodigal son or lost son. And interestingly enough, the lost son is not the son that actually goes and squanders the wealth. It's the brother that stays at home and, turn, and turns his heart black at his returning brother. But it's obvious that as a result of those parables, if you try to pull anything out from those parables that doesn't somehow relate to Jesus' care for the lost, 
you've missed the point, right? We, if we're going to retranslate those parables into our understanding, the lost have still got to be that concept. So then point two, then we relate a current example to the idea of those points of reference, right? So if it's lost sheep, we're, none of us have ever been sheep herders, at least I'm assuming. May, you probably, have you herded sheep before? Oh, gosh. <laughs> okay. Almost none of us has ever, ever herded sheep before. <laughs> that was a completely unfair assumption for me to make. Way to go and actually proving me wrong. <laughs> the point is this, right? I mean, you, or, or actually what, what that then creates is that you as having the experience of working with sheep could tell that parable significantly better than I could. I have never worked with sheep except for chasing them in a field. That's all I've ever done with sheep before. So I can tell you that they love to run from me. That's all I, because I, and I've been told it's because I'm not their shepherd. I'm not the person that they know. So everyone else is danger to them. There's so much that you could pull out of that parable of the lost sheep from your experience with sheep, but you would then be able to turn that to, it would be kind of like you doing this here and whatever that might be, because you've had that experience. Doing that historical context work allows us to do that. But here's the most important part, because a parable should have an intended response, or we should be getting an intended response from our understanding of the parable. So point three is, if it doesn't evoke the same response, then we gotta go back and do it all over again. Because the point is to work with the parable the way that it was being used. The particulars aren't quite as important if we're going to get the, you know, the heart of the parable as it is, um, the, uh, as it is the intended response. Let me just by way of example, kind of show you what I'm talking about. Um, how they, how they did one here. Um, <clears throat> so this one, uh, they did, they retold hermeneutically speaking, and we'll finish with this for the evening. Hermeneutically speaking, retold the, the parable of the good Samaritan. Okay, so this is just a quote from the book. A family of disheveled, unkempt individuals was stranded by the side of a major road on a Sunday morning. They were in obvious distress. The mother was sitting on her tattered suitcase, hair uncombed, clothes in disarray, with a glazed look in her eyes, holding a smelly, poorly clothed, crying baby. The father was unshaved, dressed in coveralls, a look of despair on his face as he tried to corral two other youngsters. Beside them was a run-down old car that had obviously just given up the ghost. So down the road came a car driven by the local bishop. He was on his way to church. And though the father of the family waved frantically, the bishop could not hold up his people. So he acted as though he didn't see them. Soon came another car. And again, the father waved furiously. But the car was driven by the president of the Kiwanis Club. And he was late for a statewide meeting of Kiwanis presidents in a nearby city. So he too acted as though he did not see them and kept his eyes straight on the road ahead of him. So now, the particular we got to look for is the part that we're all looking for. Where's the punchline? The Samaritan, right? The next car that came by was driven by an outspoken local atheist who had never been to church in his life. When he saw the family's distress, he took them into his own car. After inquiring to their need, he took them to a local motel where he paid for a week's lodging while the father found work. He also paid for the father to rent a car so he could look for work and gave the mother cash for food and new clothes. 
Now, here's the thing. And what I love about this, and they actually talk about the fact that they did this in a sermon at one point, and as a result, like, people darn near threw stuff at them, um, which I thought, well, I thought it was fantastic because typically when we hear the story of the Good Samaritan, we impose ourselves in the Samaritan's position, right? But that's not what the parable actually was indicating. The parable picked a Samaritan, which doesn't mean a whole lot, with the exception maybe of Wayne and I that have spent a ton of time studying the relationship of the Samaritans to the rest of the Hebrews. But the closest analog that you and I would have in terms of our Christian community would not be to look to, you know, some Christian that we didn't necessarily like. It would actually be to pick the local atheist, you know, the one voted least likely to be a good person. And it all of a sudden it creates this guttural, like, grinding of the gears. Like, wait a minute, it's not supposed to work that way. That has, that's more the intended response, the intended um, experience of hearing that parable. And when we try to deal with parables, it becomes our responsibility if we really want to try to get to them um, for ourselves to try to look for what would this part be much more like in my culture. Uh, And I I really liked that as an example. Um, So that being said, thank you for letting me go a little bit longer this evening. Um, There was a ton of information. I apologize if that made you feel intimidated. That is definitely not my intent in any way, shape, or form. But I wanted you to have like a resource to kind of reach for at some point as you start to kind of dive in a little bit more with Gospels. Um, So that is all.